Welcome to a new episode of Contravariance, where Bas remembers his open source projects and previous talks, and Benedict finally shares more on a secret project, and sets someone up for an interesting challenge, which is our dear guest for this episode, John Paul Hudson Sundell. This is Contravariance, a podcast about Apple, Swift, and other programming-related topics. Good evening, Buzz. Yeah, good evening again, right? Again. Not morning this time. Again. No, evening again. Yeah, but not not at a not at a meetup this time. No, and also not Xing. We are at home. Also not Xing, yeah. yeah. Because um we have another uh, guest on the podcast. Oh wow. So who's that guest? Maybe they can introduce themselves. Yeah, let them. Is this the part where I say that I'm Paul Hudson? <laughs> wait, you're not I think we, we I think we invited the wrong guest, Ben. Uh, oh no, it happened like again. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always confused with these lists. Yeah, it's so difficult to tell people apart, right? In fact, right. it actually happens quite a lot that people confuse me and Paul. Uh, so I'm not Paul Hudson, I'm John Sundell, but the, the the thing we're joking about here is that when Paul was on this show, he actually said that he was me, so I thought I'd return the favor. <laughs> but it does happen that people uh, mix us up, like at conferences and things, like people will come up to me and say, hey, are you that guy who writes Hacking with Swift? And I'm like, uh, no, the the other sites, that's me. <laughs> I'm Hacking with Object to C. Right, exactly. <laughs> are you the one with 30 or 32,000 followers? Right, exactly. That's uh, That's always. <laughs> The, the big question right <laughs> so how are you doing john i'm doing really great i am uh, getting settled in here in my new apartment in gdansk here in poland i recently moved uh, to a new city which is always really exciting uh, i've actually moved quite a lot in my life uh, moved between many different cities and now to a new country as well and uh, it's always fun when you're in someone somewhere new and you have to discover like where's the best place to eat, where's the best place to walk your dog, or wh- where's the best place to to do shopping. Uh, it feels like an adventure. So I've been really enjoying that for the last couple of months. That's how many, awesome. How many people live in Gdansk? I would say in the metropolitan area, there should be around half a million people, but that mm-hmm. might be wrong. But it should mm-hmm. at least give you a sense of scale. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a huge city. It's not a, like a metropolis. Uh, but there are actually three cities connected. You have Gdansk, where I live. You have Sopot and Gdynia. And they form the three-city area, which are these three cities right next to each other uh, on the northern coast of Poland, or the only coast of Poland. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's really, really nice with these three cities connected because they all have pretty distinct personalities, and you can get between them really easily using a commuter train. So uh, it's, it's really cool like, yeah, to, to hang out in this area and to explore it. That sounds yeah. interesting. Oh, sorry, you've gone, it's, it's great having like good public transport and being able to visit other cities that are relatively nearby but give you a very different vibe. Um, like that's something I haven't really gotten used to in Germany yet, but that's something I really loved in the Netherlands where everything is super close as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny when you meet people from countries like the Netherlands where you can drive through the entire country in a couple of hours, right? (laughs) Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, people always have a very different sense of distance, uh, when it comes to, the country they live in, right? So, you know, for, for someone living in, living in Portugal or in the Netherlands or Belgium or some of the smaller countries in Europe, it's like, oh, a city that is one hour away, that's super far away. While for me, <laughs> like coming from Sweden, where, 
you know, the two biggest cities, Gothenburg and Stockholm, are like five, six hours by driving apart. I feel like a city that is one hour away is really close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and th- yeah, that's interesting about like different countries with different sizes, I guess. And yeah. People, people that live in LA, for example, for them taking a uh, going by bus to Vegas is like six hours and that's close. That's right. not far away. <laughs> it's just around the corner. Away. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it works like that. It's like it's always depends on what you're used to, right? So if you're used to uh, commuting for two hours, you know, between where you live and where you work, that two-hour commute is nothing to you, right? Like you do it every day. It's it's normal. It's part of your life. While for someone else, like you know, again, like someone living in in the Netherlands, for example, like two hours gets you out of the country, basically, right? So it's a, it's it's very very different, and it really depends on on what you're used to. And I I find that really fascinating. Have you been doing anything uh, fun uh, lately, Benedict? Uh, well, apart from being sick, um, I played around with, I, I sent out a tweet, I played around with uh, WebAssembly and SVG and HTML and so on, um, because I, I have this side project um, that I've been working on for a long time now, and I've now reached a phase where what's left are difficult bugs, and I don't like working in difficult bugs, so <laughs> whatever. Just opportun- don't just don't write the bug. Yes, whatever opportunity I can find to procrastinate, I do. And so when I needed a teaser website, I thought, well, I need to register a domain. And the, the once I had registered the domain, I was like, well, before putting up the teaser, there should at least be some content. So I had the opportunity to build a pre-teaser website. And um, for that, I went down and wrote some C code, compiled it to WebAssembly to um, to display a animated grid like in an 80s movie and then add some, added some animated SVG files on top. That was very fun, uh, but it didn't help my project in any way. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens. That's that's called procrastinating working, right? Like <laughs> yes. you're working by procrastinating. I I tend to do my best work that way. <laughs> but that sounds sounds very on brand, Benedict. And now your project has an official name, right? Right. It's called Hyperdeck. Ooh, Ooh. nice. I love it. Yes. And I happen to know um, what this project is about, but I won't spoil it here on the show. Uh, but uh, I I will say that the name is very fitting to what the what what it does, and I love that '80s style. Uh, nostalgia graphics that you're going for on the website. Like, I think that that, that will be a pretty nice match. Thank you. Thank you. Let's uh, let's see if I ever finish it. That's currently my, my saying. But at some point, I will probably run out of alternative things I can work on. And so <laughs> I, I have to finish it. Well, you already have written a compiler in order to compile the app. And you've already written yeah. your own programming language. And you've already written <laughs> your own UI toolkit. That's when you finally build the app. <laughs> uh, well, you still need an operating system. Right, exactly. And then you need <laughs> hardware to run it on as well. So, yeah, right. you can keep going right. down the stack. Maybe yeah. you need to mine your own metal in order to build your own <laughs> hardware, you know, finally to make the software happen. <laughs> yeah. At what point did you truly make it yourself, right? Is that, is that what you call a full-stack engineer, someone yeah. who does that? <laughs> yeah, he also sits on a bike all day, generates the electricity for the tools himself. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Handcrafted electricity. Yes. Awesome. Um, Bus, did you do anything cool this weekend? Oh, yes. Um, I've been to Copenhagen. Uh, Ooh, that's been a, such a, a nice city. Oh, it was great. Um, so I had the opportunity to meet uh, Tobias um, and Marina, who both live in Copenhagen, uh, somewhere last year. And I still, I should actually check this, but like at some point we, we basically uh, 
understood, hey, we all love food. I mean, who doesn't? Uh, let's make dinner together someday, right? And it was like, well, then it's probably me going to Copenhagen because they already live there. Um, so I went to Copenhagen, uh, gave a talk and a meetup, and then we didn't actually end up cooking dinner. Um, but that's a story for another day, I guess. But uh, <laughs> So now I have a reason to go back. And then, yes, it was a lot of fun. Uh, saw a lot of things. Uh, weather wasn't amazing. And then especially on the way back, the weather wasn't amazing because there was this huge storm in Germany, uh, which initially we thought that it would have to go back to uh, uh, to Copenhagen and stay there for a few more days. Um, but in the end, the, uh, the traveling took like twice the amount of time, but I made it back to, to Hamburg. Wow, sounds like an adventure. How did you get there? Did you drive or go by train or plane or... Yeah, I, w- I went by train. So on the way there, it was a nice four and a half hour sleep. On the way back, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> There's a route from uh, Hamburg to Copenhagen where the train goes onto a ship in between. So you step onto the train, Ooh. the train goes to Denmark, it, sh- it goes onto a ship, and then you can get off the train while you're on the ship, buy some stuff, step outside, look at the water, then get back on the train, and the train continues to at the water, then get back on the train, and the train continues to Copenhagen. You can't book that train, and I really want to take it again because it's such a fun experience. Yeah, that sounds really cool. It's like one of those things where you go on a bus or something, and the bus drives onto a train, and then the train takes you somewhere. Like It's always fun when you have a mode of transport that is then transported by another mode of transport. (laughs) It's transforming the transport. Yeah, it's like nested transport. (laughs) It's like an optional. You have to unpack it. Exactly. You never know if you're Stack. still going to be there when you when you get to the other side. Stack Overflow. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So Stack Overflow. Now we're talking about code. Yeah. Uh, so maybe let's talk a bit more about code. You know, like we don't do enough of that all of all of our, you know, all day. Right. Um, so you've been working on some super cool projects, John. Um, and it's open source. Um, do you want to introduce it? Sure. So uh, I believe you're referring to my suite of static site generation tools, which I open sourced uh, right before the end of the year. So my goal was uh, for for most of 2019 was to finish that open sourcing process before the end of the year. And of course, I finished on the 30th of December. So I'm actually proud of myself that I didn't finish on New Year's Eve, but actually a whole day before that. uh, That was that was a very, very important thing for me. <laughs> Probably uh, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Proper project management. Exactly. So uh, this uh, this suite of tools, there are three tools. They're called Ink, Plot, and Publish. And they are written to enable you to write a website, a statically generated website, completely in Swift. And... Uh, The three tools have different roles in that process. So you have Ink, which is a markdown parser. It takes your markdown content that you've written and turns that into HTML. You've then got Plot, which is a DSL for writing HTML, XML, and RSS. So you can define your RSS feeds, your HTML templates, and all that stuff completely in Swift and in a completely type-safe way. And then you've got Publish that kind of orchestrates the whole process of taking your files, taking your assets, taking your CSS, and then running that through the generator to produce a website on the other end. So yeah, that's what I've been working on for many months now. And I'm still working on them, even though now it's a little bit lower velocity now that they are, you know, they're they're released, the first versions are out there. 
And uh, it's been a lot of fun, the whole process of, of building them and now sharing them with the community. It, it looks really cool. Um, Buzz and I, we, we played around with it. We built a small project as a preparation for this podcast. And it's really fascinating to work with it. Also, a lot of the abstractions that you're using um, are really cool uh, in that they allow you to have, for example, associated types on the elements or on the items um, of, of a block so that you can have custom custom data on there, but it's all typeset. I love that. Um, but taking a, a broad view um, of all three projects, which of these three for you was were the, the trickiest? So they were all kind of tricky in different ways. So if we start with Ink, the, the markdown parser, the, the trickiest part there was, was a little bit self-imposed, to be frank, where I had as a goal with the project from the beginning that I wanted to strive for O of N time complexity. So what that means is that I wanted to write the parser in a way that it only looks at each character once when parsing the markdown. And that might sound easy or you know it might sound trivial well of course you just iterate through the string when you're parsing it of course you just need to read each character once but if you look at the markdown spec or there there are many specs but if you look at markdown in in general you it's kind of tricky to to parse it in a way that is linear so that was a that was a big engineering challenge to make that happen and it, it's not completely o of n but that was the goal and it gets really really close so making that really performant and, and also making the code elegant in terms of decoupling the implementation. So, you know, there are many different uh, parts of a Markdown document that you need to parse. And I wanted to make sure that each of those parts was kind of isolated into its own little mini parser. So I wrote this abstraction called fragments where you can have like a link fragment, a style text fragment, header fragment, etc. So that was, that was the trickiest part of that. And that took quite a long time to really get right. And then with plot, the the um, HTML DSL, the challenge there wasn't so much in, in terms of writing the code, uh, because that was pretty straightforward, actually. The, the, the big challenge there was to get a really, really nice API in place, like to design an API that fe felt really easy to use and lightweight, while also being 100% type safe. Uh, and I, I played around with many different abstractions and, and styles of API design uh, before I ended up with the one that Plot uses. So that took a lot of time as well, but that was kind of a different challenge. And then with Publish, the challenge there was to build a static site generator that wasn't just made for generating Swift by Sundell, but something that could be used to generate more or less any website. So to generalize it in a way that would be generally usable for a lot of people. So they all had different challenges. So it's hard to say which one was the actual, the trickiest to implement. Uh, but I would say like Ink was probably the one where I struggled most in terms of like getting stuck and, and rewriting things many, many times because I wasn't happy with them, while the other ones more or less just required like exploration and prototyping and things like that. But it wasn't so much like grinding those same gears over and over. So uh, that, that that kind of uh, should give you a paint you a picture mm -hmm. of of kind of the process that went into those three tools. Did you did you look at any other um, markdown parsers to see how other people solved that problem? I did. Um, so when I write software in general, especially if I when I write things like these, I try to not look too much at 
other tools. I try to look at what's there just to see like what are the different options that I might have and might I want to reuse some existing tool rather than build a new one. But once I get down to the implementation, I like to approach it with a fresh pair of eyes. So I feel like if I look too much at what other people have done and what the kind of, you know, current way of doing something might be or, or something that might be trendy, I might be too influenced by that. So I like to just approach things with like some form of just trying to use my intuition or trying to prototype and experiment my way to solving a problem because I feel like it won't necessarily generate like the best outcome because I might be making mistakes that other people have made before and that they have solved. But I feel like I can at least like add another point of conversation uh, around that problem. So I might be solving something in a very different way. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, the API that Publish has is kind of different from other static site generators. And that's kind of the product that you get when you work this way, is that if I would look too much at what the other static site generators do, I would probably end up designing an API that was very similar to them. But here I have now a, I'm not going to say it's super unique or anything, but at least a different take on the problem. And I find that really interesting. I think it's super cool as well that you basically had this vision per project, right? Like I think the whole goal of uh, making something O of N is really cool to know from the start and to like, it might not be easy, um, but it's it's great to have this, this end goal, this horizon to work towards. Um, and I think that makes it, also that you can work on these projects and that you really have a, a long-term strategy for how you, how you work on them. Um, and then what we see with um, plot, um, no, sorry, publish, where you say, hey, I want to make it generic. I want to make it agnostic. Uh, and I think that's also something that is really interesting about open source, where you have to find this balance between making things agnostic or like work with plugins and work for others. Uh, while still making sure that it works for you without too many workarounds. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think it's very important in general to have a solid set of engineering goals whenever you're pursuing a new project. And you know, even if that's an open source project, even if it's something you're building for yourself or some internal tool that you're building at, at your company, I think it's really important to set out like, what are some of the fundamental principles that I wanna follow when building this thing? Because they can also help you in terms of making decisions. So there was a couple of different points uh, throughout the development of these projects where you know, I wasn't really sure what to do. Like, should I go this way or that way? But since I had those kind of really strong goals that I set since the early beginning, it was much easier to make those decisions because I wanted to make those decisions in favor of those early goals. So when I had the choice, for example, in Inc. to do something that would be, you know, slightly more complicated, but it would preserve that O of N complexity, I chose the slightly more complex way rather than taking a shortcut which could sacrifice performance because performance was such a core goal of that project. Yeah, I love that. And I think more like companies as well should do that. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it's always <laughs> super difficult to figure out what do we want to work on and where do we want to work towards. And obviously it's also a lot, a lot, a lot more complex when you're working with more people. Um, but I've seen it have a great effect in, in open source projects that I've been working on. And like hearing you uh, like say that basically as the first thing you you think about when you're talking about these tools, I think that's that's great. Yeah, because it's it's really hard sometimes to make decisions when you are 
in a situation where you really want to solve something, it's so easy to go for that easy solution that just lets you solve the thing and move on. But that might actually be hurting your project long term. You might be building up technical depth or you might be, you know, killing your performance or you might do something else that might not be good for your project. So I think like, you know, you have to, of course, be pragmatic. You can't just, you know, stick to your goals no matter what. Like sometimes you do have to give in. But I think like trying to make as many of those decisions up front to, to just help you in those situations where you don't really know what to do, I think that that can be a really great service to do to yourself and your team, uh, you know, up front. Yeah, for sure. And of course, these should be as informed as possible, right? You, sh you shouldn't say, okay, let's go for the perfect uh, world without even knowing if that's remotely possible. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where the prototyping comes in. I think, you know, once you go into kind of full production mode and you really want to build something, you should have prototyped and, and experimented a lot to kind of explore many different ways to go about it and to do so in a very lightweight manner where you are allowed to you know make mistakes you're allowed to throw away code that is not working and i did that a lot with these three projects like i have probably like if you would sum up everything i've probably rewritten each of these three tools like five times <laughs> like not from scratch like it wasn't like i i, I threw away all the code and started from the beginning, but I was just doing a lot of prototyping in the beginning to figure out what felt right in terms of an API, what what was performant, what was working under all the different constraints and circumstances. So I also think that's really important to kind of combine having those kind of strong goals and those strong principles once you go into production, but to start out way looser and to say like, okay, anything goes, let me explore, you know, all different kinds of ideas, how crazy they might seem in the beginning and pick one after that and go for it yeah i think it's all about this iteration and like the more you do it the the better your your product will be yeah for sure um so you mentioned api design and it's something that i love um and like it's it's great when you can build a, a, a nice to use api design or a nice to use api but it's so difficult <laughs> yeah um can you t can you tell me a bit of can you tell us a little bit more of how you dealt with that and what you've learned uh building your projects yeah absolutely so i think one really key component to good api design is dog fooding i think as the api designer it's it's such a good situation if you are a really big power user of the API that you're designing. So if you're using all of the customization options, you're using all of the most powerful features, you are really, really pushing the API to its limits, that's a really, really good thing. And in terms of publish, I think for maybe years to come, I will be the biggest user of these tools because I am building a quite big website using these tools and I'm, I'm using the official released versions, the open source versions. I'm not keeping some, you know, private fork that has some special optimizations or something like I'm using the real deal. And uh, I think that's really important because that way you're not leaving it up to your users to discover bugs or, or strange APIs. Of course, there will still be those things. There will still be edge cases and bugs that you won't discover. You won't hit all code paths, but if you can be a really heavy user of your own API, then I think that's a good thing. And during development, that might not always be possible because sometimes you're working on something and it's like a bigger thing and you can't start building your product until that 
API or that tool is ready. And this is where I use testing a lot. So I, I try to build things in a very piecemeal fashion and really use unit testing a lot to test my API. And one trick that I use here is that in Swift, when I'm building a library, I never ever use the at testable import directive. So you know when you're that's, right. That's super interesting, actually. Yeah, because you know how you can in Swift you can do at testable import, which gives you access to not only your public API but also your all of your internal methods when you're writing unit tests. But the problem is that if you're testing against that, you're not really testing only your API. You're basically taking shortcuts, and you are you are using tools that are not available to your end users. So you're actually like you're not testing the the end product. And I know that when you're writing kind of strictly unit tests, you're supposed to just test one unit. And maybe the way I'm doing things more leans towards integration tests. But I always want to hit that top level API whenever I'm testing. And if I'm going for, you know, a very broad test coverage, chances are that I will use all of those customization options and powerful features in order to hit those code paths. And that will just give me a sense of the API, how it feels. And when I'm doing this, I'm iterating on the API a lot. Like it's very, very rare that the first implementation, the first API that I have, when I import it into the test and write a test against it, I always immediately feel that something was wrong with it. There's something I want to change. And that just makes the API better. So then when I actually get to building my product using the, the new API, chances are high that it's already quite polished. And then by, by adding a real use case on top of that, so not only an artificial testing-based use case, I feel like I can create a pretty well-rounded API. Of course, there will always be room for different opinions and different edge cases that it might not cover. But I feel like that process gives me the best possible chance of producing the best API that I can produce. Oh, I love that. Um, like I, I gave a talk that I'm still so so happy about uh, where I'm basically also talking is like, hey, if you write your test, if you write your code, if you write your documentation, which arguably like all of those three you should write and write those uh, like back to back, right? Like in an iterative fashion, you really see that you learn from the code that you write after you write the documentation. And then when you go to the test, you learn, hey, maybe the documentation isn't really up to date. And you really have this iterative process uh, that improves the API you're writing. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes when One we talk about... One thing that's interesting that you brought up uh, with skipping uh, at, imp at import is that... Uh, is it at, at import? Yeah, at, Im uh, at, at importable. Im you mean at test no, testable? No, at testable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At I was confused. At testable. Yeah, I, I was confused with Objective C that has at import. Right. Because um, I had a had a discussion earlier today actually where somebody wanted to test something private, um, and I think it's really difficult if you don't uh, know, you know, haven't worked on a project in open source, for example, to really see what that means, what it means for something to be public, what it means for something to be internal. Um, what it means for something to be private. And I think we already mostly think of internal as, hey, this is what everyone can use because that's how it basically is. We can import everything everywhere. Um, but you really want to understand what your public API looks like because, well, you don't want to import everything everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And you want to also enforce some degree of modularity and separation of concerns. So if you're working on a big app, for example, chances are that you want to split that up into smaller modules, for example, Swift packages or frameworks. 
And then testing those and testing those in isolation with their own public API, I think can be really great because then you're also seeing like what it's like to call into those libraries from different perspectives. So it's not only like the, the exact usage that is right now in the app, but you're also covering other kinds of edge cases that you might encounter in the future, which is a big part of API design where, you know, there's going to always be um, a use case for an API that is like the 80% most common one, that the, the the convenience API that most use cases uses. But then you're always going to have these like special cases that might just be used in once or twice in your app. But making sure that those also stay up to date and, and high quality, I think is really important. And I think using testing for that can be a great tool. I feel when I, oftentimes when I look at open source projects that I maybe want to use, um, the first thing I'm looking for, obviously, is documentation. Now, not everybody has the time to write documentation. So sometimes you have projects that um, that don't have documentation. And then I'm usually looking for examples. Um, I, I usually hope that I find an examples folder or something where I can find clear separate projects that use the, the code that I want to use and, and show me different ways of using it in an example. And if I can't find that, usually then I'm reading the tests because at some point I think uh, everything it should do is hopefully um, done in the test and then there I can, for more, can find more information on how to properly use the project. Um, but with tests, oftentimes that, that's tricky to, it's tricky to make the abstraction between this is what's being tested and that's how I can use the project. So for, the, for me, I'll, oftentimes I'm really looking forward to examples. Is this th something that um, you also have in mind with your projects to have a couple of examples of different websites that could be done with uh, Publish? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely something that I, I want to do. And in fact, I am even working on a website for Publish itself. <laughs> so, you know, website uh, Publish will have its own website, uh, which will be open source as well. So there will be an open source example of, of how I use Publish myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's already a lot of people who have started using Publish in the community who have actually open sourced their sites. And I mm -hmm. think that's really great to see because, you know, I can write a lot of documentation, I can write a lot of examples and things like that. But I also want the community to kind of have their voice in terms of, how the best practices are formed. Because if you look at, for example, at Apple's frameworks and, and toolkits, you know, they are releasing them into the world, but then you have this entire community around them that are kind of forming the best practices. So it's not always Apple setting the direction for, you know, how the community is using something. Like Apple did not come up with the coordinator pattern or, mm. you know, architectures like, Viper or whatever. And you can have your opinions about those. I'm not saying like they, they are they are the ones you should use or whatever, but I'm just saying that it's great that the community can augment the examples and the APIs in order to form their own best practices according to different use cases. So I've also left it kind of intentionally a little bit like an open book in order for mm -hmm. to see how, how the community will receive it and how the community will use it and then start adding documentation and examples according to what I see are like gaps in what the community has already done. So I started this initiative on, on Publish called How To's. So there's like a couple of small little articles that show you like how to do X. So whenever I get a question about like how to do something in Publish X number of times, I will just write an article about it to cover that. Uh, and then someone else will contribute another article or show an example of an open source project or write a plugin. So I feel like th that's a process that needs to take its course uh, to not like just say, 
here is the only one true way to to use this tool, but to let the community kind of also help figure it out. And I mean, I've seen for uh, you've had more than 25 pull requests already in the first 10 days, and I guess it's much more now. So people seem to see really use it and also uh, expand on it and help you um, help you shape it, which is fantastic. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, Inc really uh, strives to have great performance. How do you work with pull requests there when uh, somebody adds a, let's say, support for HF for markdown tables um, and you want to make sure that that code is written in the straightforward performant manner that you envision? That's a very good question. And this is something that I really hope that we can automate going forward, like to have some kind of performance test in place uh, or even some kind of like mock string that we pass into the tests in order to verify that each character is not accessed too many times. You know, there's a bunch of different ways we can go about to to add automation here. But for now, it's mostly done manually, like with manual code reviews, just to, you know, try to make sure that it's still following those best practices. But then you know also that, you know, when you're writing software, it's not like this clean you know, laboratory endeavor, right? Like things are sometimes going to, there's sometimes going to be regressions and that's just going to, you know, that's a, that's just a cost of doing business. And even though we can add more automation and I think we should, uh, it's it's also going to be a matter of like, you know, we also need people to be able to, to contribute to this project and feel mm -hmm. comfortable doing it. And then if we end up causing a regression here or there, we can always fix it post-merge. So it's... It's not something that I am, tr I'm trying to not be overly concerned with it while still just trying to like, you know, if, if I see something where one common example is that um, people are very used in Swift to using the string by replacing string API. So mm -hmm. to say like, here's a string, I'm going to give it, get, here's a substring to search for and here's a replacement. Now that operation in of itself is O of N. So if mm -hmm. you do that in a loop, you're N squared basically, right? And that defeats the whole purpose of, of um, mm -hmm. of O of N, so that's been a very common thing to 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 point out in code reviews and say, you know, you probably don't want this API here. You probably want to iterate over each character or use a map or something that is more performance. Mm. This kind of sounds like you would love to have a um, nice blog post that explains all the uh, things you did in um, Ink to make it as fast as possible, so that people have something to orient and to know what to do and what not to do. Because I feel oftentimes people just don't know how to write really fast string parsing code in Swift. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I, I have a couple of articles already, and I it's something I want to keep exploring. There's one article on my site, which we can put a link to in the show notes, uh, which is called String Parsing in Swift. Uh, so it goes over some of the basics of, of doing that and like, you know, what does a Swift string actually look like under the hood? Like it it's, consists of characters, but, you know, what does that mean and how can you parse them in an efficient way? Uh, but of course, there's probably a lot more that needs to be written about that topic as well. I mean, it's so complex and it goes so far if you really want to describe it all. And I think Benedict knows a thing or two about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But I, I really like that you try to keep the bar low. And really, I think that's that's the most important thing you can, you can do in an open source project is to try to make people feel comfortable to contribute and to talk about things. And then you can go from there. Yeah. And you, it also helps them to, to become a better programmer because they might learn the one or the other thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you're learning as well as the maintainer. Like sometimes yeah. people give you a pull request that 
are doing something super interesting that you never thought of before, right? So it's not only, like a code review should be a two-way street, I think. Like it's not mm -hmm. just like me telling the person submitting the pull request, you know, here's what, what you can improve, but, you know, someone is teaching me things as well. And I think that's really, really great. Uh, and the other thing is that, you know, I'm a quite pedantic person. You know, I like things to be in a certain way. Uh, I like things to use a specific code style or I like, you know, the APIs to be designed, designed in a specific manner or the documentation to be formatted in a specific way. And, you know, I think you always have to be pragmatic around that kind of pedanticness when you are running an open source project. And sometimes, you know, that that might mean that I will accept a pull request, which is which is not what I would do myself, but then I sometimes just leave it as it is because it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Or I go in post-merge or I edit the pull request and ask the, the author if it's okay to, to make these changes. So there are many different ways to, to go about it, but I think it's, it's really important to try to have a nice pragmatic balance between trying to make things quote-unquote perfect, at least according to your vision, uh, and making it easy for people to contribute. That's definitely one, one other interesting thing about open source. Um, and it, it's interesting as well, like you mentioned code reviews, and I've written a blog post on that. Where I also like, I love code reviews, and two of the main reasons are I can share knowledge, but I can learn so much at the same time as well, and I think that's super cool. Because uh, if you look at like, we take code review for granted, or at least many of us take code review for granted. But if if you look at other professions, like nobody does this, nobody is able to to do this kind of thing, and I think we might take this for granted, and we maybe shouldn't. Yeah, it's definitely a huge opportunity for learning uh, for everybody involved. So, uh, and a great source of discussions as well. Uh, so, yeah, I think code reviews can be a super positive thing as long as everybody kind of, you know, has the right mindset and approaches it in the right manner. So it doesn't become, you know, a hostile kind of argument of, you know, two people just against each other because that's really not what it is. Like everybody wants to make the code better and, that's just, just what we should strive for. Mm. Yeah. And on that note, um, you mentioned, you know, code style and documentation, the way you write documentation. And I think this is often talked about as like, hey, you should automate most of this uh, so that you don't have to worry about it. Have you done anything with a linter or how, how have you approached that? I have not. And uh, the thing is that when I write code myself, I tend to be quite dynamic about my code style. So, of course, like, I want a certain degree of consistency, but it comes back to that pragmatism that I talked about before. You know, sometimes a method might read better if it's indented this way, or sometimes it might read better if it's indented a completely other way. And I think, I know that the linters that do exist are very flexible, and you can write really complex, you know, powerful rules using them, and you could also adopt just a small subset. But I just found that it's, I feel like, I, I want to have a, a large degree of flexibility and I want to give my contributors also a large degree of flexibility when it comes to like picking the right code style for each given situation. Uh, like, for example, like warranting a certain length of lines might sound good on paper, but once you get to that actual line, you might be, well, actually, this is easier to read if it's just on one big line, even though you're going to have to scroll. So... That's that's kind of my approach to it so far. I, I have used linters on some of my projects, but I've just found the actual value that they bring to be um, 
not as big as I think most people think. Uh, so as long as like, again, you're not being just having that attitude that this is the only way to do it, but you're a little bit more flexible and you're, you're, you can also fix and edit things uh, on the pull request. Like GitHub makes that super easy. Like if something is indented incorrectly, you can just click the edit button, remove that white space, click save and it's done. So yeah, I, I tend to take a little bit more of a, uh, a little bit more of a uh, uh, let's see what happens approach to that. <laughs> there, there was talk about um, something like Swift format being part of Xcode like it is with Go. With Go, you have Go format. And basically, whenever you save your code, it will automatically be formatted according to the rules so that it's you really don't think about indentation anymore. It's basically part part of the compiler, you, one could say. Um, and I tried that not with Swift, with with uh, with Go and with Rust. And what confused me to no end was that whenever I save, um, my code changes its structure. Yeah, things are in, on different lines. And I think you get used to it at some point because you just code based on the on on the uh, definitions. But for me, that was very confusing. So I I hope if that comes to Swift, that's uh, something that we can disable or enable or, or or maybe I just can get used to it. I don't know. Yeah, and I think a good thing to look at here is Swift Playgrounds on the iPad, which essentially works like that. Like, it's like, don't worry about the indentation. I got it covered. But then you also lose some control. And, and the things I talked about earlier, like some of those, like, ways of indenting your methods when you have several different arguments, for example, are not really possible uh, on the iPad and Swift Playgrounds. And that can sometimes, you know, be a little bit frustrating. So, yeah, it's it's good to have tools like this. And I, I understand in bigger teams, it's really a necessity to have some kind of standard or linter because you don't want to have to point that out in every pull request. Uh, but then again, like, if the code looks okay, if it's reasonably consistent with the rest of the code base then do we really need to nitpick about it? I'm not sure if that's worth anybody's time. I actually had the idea uh, while we were talking about this. Once a year, I should um, go to a coding interview for a job and maybe dress up a bit and so for, for a different position. And uh, then when they ask me to implement a class, just write everything in one line with all the <laughs> methods and everything. And basically just half the interview, just scroll around on the vertical axis back and forth, on the horizontal axis back and forth. And no, no, that's how I code. That's how I've always code all my life. And just completely do the whole interview with one line of code. That would be an interesting um, experiment. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if you can pull that off, with a straight you face. get a sticker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will keep that in mind. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> you should try it. <laughs> so, um, John, you are living in Poland now, right? Yeah, that's right. And you're, but you're originally from Sweden. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so I've never heard you speak Swedish. Okay. And I, I wondered, you know, are you maybe even Swedish? Are you maybe from the <laughs> yes? Maybe from Spain? <laughs> Who knows? You know, maybe maybe it's a fake identity. And so I looked up, how do you figure out if somebody is actually Swedish? So do we just the Svenska? Did you say it? And so I, <laughs> that could just have been a made-up language. I don't know what you just said. And so I, I found out that as recently as 2003, Swedish citizens abroad were sometimes forced to sing the Swedish tune Smagodona at the Swedish embassy to prove that they were, were indeed Swedes. Really? Yes. That's not an urban legend. No, apparently not. I, I found this out. 
Well, we will get to know, right? <laughs> yes. Can you can you sing that tune, John? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's give some background here. So this song, you're, you're referring to Små Grodorna, right? Yes. All right. So this is a song that we sing during the midsummer celebration in Sweden. And to give you an idea of what this is, this is what I would say is the biggest holiday in Sweden, like bigger than Christmas, bigger than New Year's Eve. Uh, it's it's super huge, and it's the brightest day of the year. And in fact, me and you, Benedict, we celebrated the Portuguese version of this holiday <laughs> once together in Porto, uh, which they also had a, the Saint Juan festival, right? So this is a this is a day that is commonly celebrated in many different cultures. It's like the brightest day of the year in the northern hemisphere, um, and in Sweden we call it Midsummer, Midsummer. Uh, was it was also uh, a there was some movie re- uh, released recently some horror movie about uh, about this holiday but I don't really know how they could turn into a horror movie I haven't seen the movie but it puzzles <laughs> me anyway so during this celebration we dance around um, what is called a midsummer pole it's like this big pole that is decorated with flowers and one of the traditional songs is Smogruduna which is a uh, song about little frogs that are funny to look at. And then we also make frog uh, dances and we do a lot of crazy things. Uh, it should also be noted that a, a fair amount of um, alcoholic beverages are consumed during this holiday. <laughs> All right, so the song goes like this. Små grodorna, små grodorna är lustiga att se. Små grodorna, små grodorna är lustiga att se. Ej öron, ej öron, ej svansar hava det. Ej öron, ej öron, ej svansar hava det. And here comes the best part. Kuakaka, 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 Everybody, kuakaka, kuakaka, That's the song. So can I keep my Swedish passport now? Yes, oh, it sounded like nice. like the five YouTube videos I listened to before in order to make sure <laughs> that. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so uh, maybe, now you've heard uh, si- you Singing apply. by Sandel. This is a new uh, new show that I'm launching soon. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you the, can apply at the Swedish embassy now, uh, Benedict, to verify yes, these people. Yes. Yeah, maybe they're looking this, for extra staff in, in the German embassy. And <laughs> the, the thing with the frogs make a, makes a lot of sense. When I listen to the song the first time at the second half when they went I was like what's now (laughs) what is this but this makes a lot of sense so I have to tell you a funny story now so I used to work at Spotify and at Spotify you know we we were in Stockholm in Sweden it's the headquarters of Spotify I was working there and we had people from all over the world coming to work there and we also had offices in many different parts of the world and we would occasionally you know fly everybody over to Stockholm to attend a party and one of those parties once we had that midsummer celebration because it was close to it and when we started singing that song the look on people's faces who were not <laughs> like from Sweden was just priceless because you knew what was going to happen you know it starts out normal like when you, you're just singing about the frogs but then you go into that kuakaka and especially with the dance like if you we can probably put a YouTube uh, video link in the show notes like that like the look on people's faces when that part began which is completely priceless it was absolutely amazing i think i think we can't top this uh part of the show so maybe we should just wrap it up here yes this is just peak yes. contravariance right here <laughs> uh, there was a very interesting and funny episode thank you john yeah thank um, you for I having me a lot it was super fun yeah, thank you, Paul Hudson, for having us. Yeah, or yes. always a pleasure. Always show. a pleasure. Go, uh, you can Paul? go buy my new book at hackingwithswift.com. 
<laughs> Paul, Paul Sandel. Well, I might as well plug Paul's books because you know I'm not selling any books on my own yet, mm -hmm. right? So if if you like, if you like to, you can go buy Paul's books, or you can go to find my website if you, if you want to as well. You can you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is brand new. Uh, that could that could use a couple of subscribers. That would be awesome. And you should also buy Paul's book, um, Swift for Good. Yes, which, absolutely. Um, I, in fact, I wrote a chapter in that book. Uh, so and I, Bus as well. And Bus everybody. as well. Yeah, everybody. Kuakaka. Yeah, everybody was everybody was there. <laughs> uh, so yeah, absolutely. Go buy uh, Swift for Good. That's a really, really great book to buy. All right. Okay. John, thank you so much. And it was a pleasure to, to talk with you again. Yeah, super, super fun to talk to you guys. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, talk to you soon. Small crew, the last small crew, the last big, 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 the last big